Hi everyone, welcome to SJW, Social Justice Weirdos. I'm Charlie McCorn, I use they, them, their pronouns. And I am Lenny Peppers, I use she, her, hers pronouns. So, uh, this week, uh, it was my turn to pick a topic, and I decided to go uh, a little outside my, my wheelhouse, as it were, and I talk about the life of Rachel Carson. She is maybe one of the most important biologists, conservationists, and critic of pesticides of all time. She's kind of the reason that, you know, DDT isn't around anymore. We're not spraying our kids with DDT in the, uh, in the pools. Speak for yourself. Yes, absolutely. The only DDTs are still around are the professional wrestling ones. Those ones are also deadly, but done by professionals. Unless you think your kid might be like the next like North American champion. In which case, start... Listen, hey, listener, do you have a kid nearby? Okay, grab them in a headlock and then DDT into the ground and do that 10 times a day so they get ready, you know, to become the North American champion. You have to... You have to start them with the head trauma early to become professional wrestlers. That's how it happens. If you want your kid to be any type of professional, you should start with the head trauma early, no matter what. Oh, absolutely. Politics, gotta have some brain damage if you want to get into politics. Especially in Montana politics. I mean, Dion Forte's our governor, so... Oh, sure. People who actually, like, cause uh, head trauma to other people and then don't, and then uh, walk away from their sentence from it because they're rich. That's what Montana's all about, right? Letting the rich people get away with crime. God, I love our state. We are so put together. So speaking of states, Pennsylvania, 1907, the birthplace of Rachel Louise Carson. Uh, she was uh, born uh, near the Allegheny River, um, near Pittsburgh. Uh, her parents uh, had a farm, and they instilled in her a, a love of reading from a very young age. Around the age of eight, uh, she started writing her own stories. And these were usually stories kind of in the, th the thread of like... Oh, I don't know, like uh, like Beatrix Potter, I guess. Like, oh, all of the animals out in the field are having are having adventures. She started writing since she was eight. Published one at ten in like a local newspaper, and the natural world was like her jam. She she loved it. She loved spending time in it. She loved the ocean, and she loved reading books about it there too. Ah, that is so charming. Like, who doesn't love the ocean? I absolutely think that I could have been published at ten. If Watership Down hadn't already been written, I maybe even could have written that. <laughs> so uh, she goes to college, uh, which was uh, uh, now uh, Chatham University, Chatham University. I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't know if there's any Pennsylvanians listening, but to be fair, all of your proper nouns are super weird out there. You just don't know what's going on. Totally. My husband went to art school there for like two years, and I still can't understand a damn thing he's saying. But she studied uh, English originally to be a writer. But then it's like, well, you know what? I can write no matter what. I'm going to switch to biology. Uh, and she continued uh, writing. She continued studying biology. She eventually made her way into uh, graduate school. Uh, she was always at the top of her class, always uh, an astounding uh, wit and uh, force for knowledge in the classroom. And uh, she started working uh, in different labs, doing experimentations on rats, you know, to make a little extra money. As we do. Yeah. So here's where things get um, a little interesting, we'll say. So so writing her first book, like one of her first big books is called The Edge of the Sea. And uh, this was all about sort of the ecology of sea life. It's like, what happens here you know what what do we know what is the thing that we are not seeing beneath the ground so she's about 40 years old now 
this has uh, been a very, very long journey since the publishing of her first book at age 10. Yes, a long ways. Uh, her writing style had not actually improved. It was all uh, poorly misspelled. Like the R's were spelled backwards, like delightfully. And sometimes like CH sounds are spelled with an S, you know, because when you start writing at 10, you only start writing at that same level. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, I still, when I'm writing red rum on the door, get the R's all stupid. So <laughs> That's what I've learned anyway. Uh, I also plan on doing all of my graduate level papers, like just like that. All handwritten, all in crayon. I already do, which is probably why I'm so unemployed and broke right now. <laughs> One thing that she became very, very intrigued on was the federal use of widespread pesticide spraying. Now, pesticides uh, obviously were a huge boon. Um, they really helped win World War II in a lot of ways, preventing malaria, yellow fever, and other diseases that would kill soldiers, you know, dead, take them out of the fight. It, it changed the war around, and so pesticides were, were very frequently used. However, she said, we're just dumping these on everything. Private lands, public lands, we're spraying DDT on kids in swimming pools. We are, we are doing this. There's got to be some, something, there's something else. Like, this, this can't be safe. Like, like, this is worrying to me. So, for the rest of her, so from this point on, the rest of her life was studying pesticides. I mean, we had to come to a point in the world where someone, somewhere, was like, maybe we shouldn't spray chemicals on our kids. This, her research uh, led to the publication of her 1962 book, Silent Spring, which is her, her best known work by far. Uh, the book is about her research and her studies and sort of discovering what the harmful effects of pesticides were on the environment and on people. Now, there was obviously environmental movements in the United States before this, right? Obviously, there were people who were realizing, you know, maybe we need to be more careful about how we're treating this planet, how we're treating the land. However, the environmental movement as we know it today started with this book. Wow. Okay. She, yeah. She was like, yeah, we're spraying pesticides. Look at how many birds are dying. Look at how small our birds are. Look at how, under how un uh, underdeveloped our birds and our animals are going, are becoming. What is this doing to humans? What year was this? This was 62. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So this sort of pushed her into uh, her, her, her studies and it led to some, some big things. There was a Supreme court case uh, that did not go the way of the environment, but it sort of opened up the door for some of these larger things. And this book, which was a huge hit, like this book, uh, kind of like blew everyone away except the government who's like, well, she's lying. This is propaganda. You know, think about how terrible all these mosquitoes are. Think about the fire ant, huh? We have to kill all of the fire ants. Do you think tiny birds, you know, we can have tiny birds as long as there are no fire ants. I can see the logic in it. I mean, you get rid of all the fire ants, but you can have like maybe even fire ant sized birds. Okay. Now I'm torn on which side that I'm on. <laughs> And the, the USDA and, and this, the Department of Agriculture, huge critics of her for her entire life. They said that she was a rabble rouser. They said that uh, she, uh, well, you know, some people threw around the idea that maybe she was a communist. I mean, in 
Mother Russia when Rose is rebels. That's, those are clearly backwards arts. I mean, that's like an obvious sign for communists. The title Silent Spring kind of comes from this thing of, I went to the spring where there's usually life. There is no life now. What is happening? It's pesticides on that. So also through this time, uh, Rachel was battling breast cancer. Her, her treatment was a, a little rough. And, okay, sad news, spoiler alert. Um, she ended up dying in 1964, like right after Silent Spring was published, like two years later, not even two years later, like 18 months after Silent Spring was, was published, she, she died of breast cancer. That is tragic. Ugh. Some of the best people are taking, taken from us far too soon. That's why I'm always afraid, because I do, like, so many cool things. I'm kind of right 18 months from this. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and then it turns out, like, whoops, the, the, the pandemic happened. So that one, I kind of take responsibility for being so successful. Like, that's that's how life goes. I feel like I knew that, like, deep down, inherently. And until you just said it out loud right now, uh, I didn't realize what that feeling was. Now, Rachel Carson's uh, never married. She did, however... Uh, have a very interesting relationship uh, with a woman named Dorothy Freeman that she met in 1953. We we know what that most likely really means. So, again, I'm not trying to retroactively apply any kind of sexual identity to someone who, who didn't outwardly claim that during the time or, or would not have had the... Um, the verbiage or the definitions to really like use terms for themselves that, that, that fit who they were. And there is some debate about the extent of her relationship with Dorothy Freeman. They could have been just like super close BFFs. However, there have been uh, some who believe that Freeman and Carson's relationship may have been a bit more romantic in nature. Experts always go with they were very good friends. One of the things stems from the two of them wrote extensively to each other. And I mean extensively. Um, they wrote, I believe, over 900 letters in their life to, get, like, to each other in the course of their relationship, whatever the extent of that will be. That was about 12 years. 900 letters in 12 years. Uh, that means they were writing each other uh, 75 times a month for 12 years. Is that right? Is that right? Did I do that right? Oh, see, if I could do math, I wouldn't worry about this. Can any comics do math? Is that a thing that we're supposed to know how to do? They were writing on average like six and a quarter letters to each other every month for their, their whole friendship. Some of these letters uh, still exist and have been published into a really beautiful book called uh, Love, Rachel which sort of uh, extends that. However, both women destroyed large numbers of these letters in their lifetimes. Uh -huh. And the contents of which were very, I guess, closely guarded. Um, Dorothy Freeman was married to a man. She, she had a husband during, during this whole time. And she did share some of her letters with her husband, but the letters just sort of showed a very strong friendship. However, other letters, and this is just a direct quote uh, from one, this one goes from uh, Dorothy to Rachel. It says, quote, I love you beyond expression. My love is as boundless as the sea. Ah, uh, that's beautiful. And then Rachel Carson's very last letter to Freeman um, sent right before she died. Quote, 
Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years. And again, shortly before Rachel's death, she and Dorothy Freeman destroyed hundreds and hundreds of these letters. Who knows what their context is? Who knows what's what's going on? As a poly person uh, who has both a husband and a girlfriend, I wonder what her husband thought of that. Like, was he totally just accepting? There's no point in destroying them all if there wasn't, like, some reason to, like, hide something. I don't know. It's hard to... I mean, you can't, like, just assume, like, in situations like these. But as the romantic that I am, um, I would like to think that they were all, like, deeply personal, deeply beautiful, deeply sexual letters to each other. It makes me wonder what would happen if I saved all of my texts between me and, like, any of my lovers and just, like, stuck them in the attic for my kids to find someday and then they could, like, publish them and turn them into a book and be like, Grandma was freaky. Anyway, that's way off topic. Uh, tell us more about her. So, this sort of leads to sort of the larger talk conversation about the impact Rachel Carson had on, on the world of environmental uh, protection. In protecting our environment, as we are realizing, as as the world continues to get scarier and scarier, and the the those hanging sort of Damocles of climate change hangs over our heads, is that protecting the environment is one of the most important things that we can do. Irreparable damage has been done. We need to mitigate the fallout from that and find a way to create a new system that keeps people safer. And this is all because of Rachel Carson. She was derided through her life and through the last years of her life as an agitator, as un-American, because she was talking about how, you know, these chemicals created by these great American companies are killing our planet. Mm -hmm. And people do not listen to her. Um, posthumously, however, her, her, uh, her view, uh, her, the way the world viewed her, turned around quite a bit. Um, she was posthumously granted the Presidential Medal of Freedom by uh, by Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Earl Carter. As she well-deserved. Um, however, you know, and a lot of the things that she for put for were eventually uh, put into law. There was the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which was about how to protect, you know, how to safely use these very useful and very, you know, important uh, pesticides that do have a purpose, that are protecting our crops, that are protecting our soldiers, but in a way to do them safe and make sure that we're not doing more damage. Uh, however, 1980s, here comes Ronald Reagan, and uh, he rolled back most of these policies that were a result of Rachel Carson's direct work. Of course he did. Reagan, yeah. You know, the economy was booming, but... You know, our planet was dying, and they had a pandemic that the president did a shitty job of running. So, let's see what happens next. That That's that's sort of the life of, of Rachel Carson. There is an amazing PBS documentary uh, about it called, I believe, just Silent Spring, I think. Uh, I checked it out on the American Experience um, series, which I'm a huge fan of, as, as we've said before. But uh, that is kind of the life of Rachel Carson. It's so fascinating to me to be able to look at like attitudes of the overall society in not only her time, there's several different figures in history, like Hans Christian Andersen, who also had letters that later 
um, you know, suggested that they had a different orientation than they presented as. And so, you know, I'm always curious about members of my own family, like in the past. Um, there's cool pictures, but there just isn't enough documentation to find out like what was going on in their lives. With the complexity of Rachel Carson's life, with the complexity of our own lives, I really feel like this is a part of a story that needs to be told more deeply in everybody's personal uh, family stories. Yeah, I, I think that one thing that is worrying to me as a as as a historian and someone who, who recognizes that the way that we we preserve information has changed dramatically in my lifetime mm-hmm. letters still exist and like every one that i get every card that i get i i save i i absolutely kind of keep it uh for for reasons like that because email you know is not going to last forever all of this stuff that we're posting on like facebook you know all of our messages on facebook you know if dorothy and rachel had facebook and we're just like messaging back and forth. We wouldn't have these letters. We wouldn't have that. And that relationship is just between the two of them. Oh yeah, totally. And it's so much easier to delete it. Like you don't have to get together and like have a big burn party for all of your, you know, for your deep and dark personal thoughts. You just, you know, smash up your laptop and throw it in the ocean, you know, something like that. Either way, it doesn't have to be as ceremonial as the burning of the letters. It's important to write down, you know, in physical media, you know, I keep I've, I've kept a, a journal, you know, for years, just writing down, you know, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little, but still something every day because of the importance that it might hold uh, for future bio, uh, biographers of me, obviously, future biographers of my friends, or more importantly, what it's like to exist uh, in this in this unprecedented time. You know what we need to do is we need to, like, just get rich you know, like donate a bunch of money to the library and then just make a Charlie McCorn part of the library with all of your letters and all of your pictures and everything. Uh, just start doing it now. Like the sooner, the better. I'll make some calls. Absolutely. I think Missoula Public Library needs to get on it. I was their volunteer of the year in 2015, which I think is like one step like closer to full full recognition for, for my influence at the public library. Everybody at the public library in Missoula, Montana knows who you are, Charlie. That being said, I think that we need to also name something after me. I just have always wanted that. And uh, now that we're, you know, on the topic of it, I think that that's something that I should just put out there into the world. I feel that if we wanted to accurately portray the, the, the posthumous awards of any of our comedians, it should absolutely be that dumpster behind the union club. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. This is this is the Charlie and Lenny Memorial dumpster. They they allegedly may have gotten high back here many times. Oh, I mean, maybe consider naming all of the dumpsters behind the biggest bars in Missoula uh, after different comics uh, from around town. <laughs> and uh, and that's that's Rachel Carson's. Oh yeah, totally, uh, Rachel Carson. That's what this entire episode is about. It definitely was not just me trying to get a dumpster named after me. Okay, so what year did she die again? She died in 1964. There was also some other major environmental um, issues brought on, like, around the time of, like, the Depression. The Dust Bowl. Yeah, 
Yeah, and nobody had like really looked into it before that. It was part of the reason, and, and this is like a larger historical conversation, and I'm, I know I'm going to do a, a really poor job of kind of getting to the nuance of, of why America was the way it was in 1962. But coming out of World War, War II, you know, a truly mechanized war, like World War One, like a mechanized war, World War Two, you know, atomic bombs. Uh, but it was sort of the might of the American. It, it was seen by the people at the time that the American industrial system had won the war. Mm-hmm. We have all of these new um, chemicals and all of these new products. Plastics are, are blowing up, which Jesus Christ, speaking of spy, Silent Spring and killing things, plastic is is everywhere. It is, it is, it is in us, it is in our food, it is in our water. And it was like, oh, look at how great this is. We have plastic. No, look at all these amazing uh, futuristic amenities. Look at like that, like the space race in the 1960s and sort of that boom that came with that. It's like, well, yeah, we can go to the moon because science can do anything. Oh, look what, you know, the space program has created this amazing new thing in our day-to-day life. And, you know, these chemicals, you know, before widespread use of pesticides and DDT, the way that we're talking about, at least in the context of, of, of this conversation, you know, malaria was a killer. Uh, yellow fever was a killer. U.S. soldiers, U.S. workers, uh, the Panama Canal, like specifically, were battling mosquitoes because the mosquitoes were killing them. You know, we and pesticides were like, well, look what we've invented. And now we have domain over nature. And we didn't consider, you know, not that we were playing in the realm of God, but when we think that we have domain over nature, all we're really saying is we are slowly killing the thing that keeps us alive. Yeah. Right. We need to, you know, I think while things have sort of like roller coastered up and down since the published publication of Silent Spring, I think it's pretty clear that we have irreparably fucked things up and we need to do something about it. And the first step is saying something, which Rachel Carson did, which, you know, her, her interests, her skills coalesced into the thing that built the modern environmental rights movement. Okay. It was definitely Rachel Carson and not Iron Eyes Cody. It was not, it, it was not. Are we doing an episode on the Italian crying Indian at some point? Yes, we will. I did it down. It is really kind of amazing the things that we could do with what we have available. Yeah, it's it's just strange to understand that the scientific method and sort of the, the, the proof that people have, like the, the way that we can prove things, the way that we prove our theories, the way Rachel Carson proved her theory about Silent Spring was by doing the work. She she didn't just like write a book like, ooh, wonder what's going on here. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this. She did the science. She was a writer, she was a biologist, and she was a conservationist. And so all of those skills, you know, showed her that if I need to prove this, I need to do the work. But despite the work being done, there are people that will still, much like now, it's like, hey, if we all wear face masks, we're gonna save thousands of lives. They'll say, well, no, it's a hoax. It's a scam. The science, the science, I, I don't believe it. And I guess it doesn't matter or not if you believe in the science because it's science. 
it's it's the way our universe works. It is the foundational like sort of understanding of our world. And yes, our understanding of the world changes. Obviously, this this story of Rachel Carson is a very interesting, you know, example of that. But we we have to be moving forward or we're all going to get stuck in the past. Absolutely. I agree. The way that I was taught to see it um, as a native and growing up being raised by my grandmother, who was very in tune with the teachings of her grandmother, that humans are actually the lowest level of existence on earth. I believe that. I feel that about myself. That's true about me. I agree. (laughs) And the reason for it is, is because the earth can live without humans. Like the earth can thrive and exist without human beings, but it couldn't without animals. It couldn't without the plants. It couldn't without the atmosphere and everything else. And so when we're looking at like levels of importance, you know, things like water and uh, things like the way that the plants and animals sustain themselves, humans aren't anywhere in that. We're actually the children of all of the things that are more important to us. I did not say that the way that I remembered her saying it to me. She was so much more concise about it, but (laughs) I think you got the point. (laughs) I do. I absolutely do. So with that, um, what are we talking about next week, Lenny? So next week we will be talking about the um, sexy blues movement that started around the 1920s. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some uh, musicians such as Lucille Bogan, um, who had some like super dirty, super spicy like music from that time. It's exciting. I look forward to it. Me too. Sexy music. Okay. Well, for Social Justice Weirdos, my name is Charlie McCorn. And my name is Lenny Peppers. Remember, throw a brick. Or not, because I forget what our sign-off is every week. I could build a house out of the bricks, all the different bricks that I've talked about on this show. Yes, you could build a house with the bricks. um, And obviously, other building materials that we've talked about in the show. And horses. Yes, and horses. (laughs) Sure. People, listen, people who live in glass houses shouldn't fight horses, is all I'm saying. And people who live in horse houses shouldn't throw bricks. Absolutely. (laughs) 